With great respect and with great kindness, it's a pleasure to welcome all of you to Spirit Rock on this absolutely delightful rainy day. Yay, rain abundance. Winnie Wichoni. Very excited about that. Um, I am the event coordinator for today's event. Welcome, 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 welcome. If I can support you in any way, my office is to the left of the bookstore and um, happy to serve you. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the gazillion volunteers that arrived this morning very early um, to help set up the room, take your uh, offerings, welcome you, and, and just generally be here. We literally could not do any of these events without the support um, and generosity of the volunteers. They have very nifty name tags. Please be nice to them. Most of them are going to come back on Monday and support us with the Monday uh, meditation fund that we're going to have. Um, today, I'd like to uh, welcome Bob Stahl and Richard Shankman to uh, the Great Hall. Um, I keep thinking how extraordinary it is that these teachers have such a deep Rolodex and such great ties that they're able to bring such a strong panel to us. This is not something that can casually happen, and I appreciate their dedication and their service to the Dharma in the way that they can bring all these amazing teachers and the teachers that are going to come on the screen. So thank you to both of you. Um, I'm going to allow you to welcome the rest of your panels as you're all speaking, since you know each other better than I do. Um, just the general general kind of housekeeping so that you can be easeful in the building. There is another event. Susie Harrington is having a two-day upstairs on the second floor. So um, if you could have some awareness in your voices, the stunning building has an echo like nobody's business. And when you're in the lobby, the voices are carrying all the way to the second floor, and they're tackling a completely different other subject. Um, you don't need to be in silence, but just be aware that there is another group going on upstairs it's raining. We're going to get cozy. I'm going to set room, uh, tables and chairs in the lobby for your comfort for lunch. Generally speaking, we agree that this room is open for lunch as well, but this room is in silence. And if you have a particularly yummy smelling lunch, make sure that you take the trash out to the lobby, not in here. Otherwise, you'll be smelling it all day. Yes to water, yes to snacks. Please um, have a cover on your water. These floors, if they get wet, are pretty slickery. Uh, the volunteers will help you dry it up, though, if you notice that there's a little spill. Um, assisted hearing devices. If you're having trouble hearing me now, this is the time that you're testing out our sound system. There are these great hearing-assisted devices on the wall, and they will help sharpen the sound. Basically, the entire room is optimized already, so that's there's no other place to sit to make to hear better. It's going to be the assisted hearing devices. Uh, when we do Q and A, um, I would highly suggest that you use the mic. Otherwise, the folks who are using the assisted hearing devices won't be getting any um, input. So please use the mic and support folks in that way. Cell phones, yeah, those little pesky little things. Cell phones, we're going to ask you to turn the cell phones off. Please do not record this day. Please do not take photography with, of humans without asking their permission first. The Buddhas and the Kuan Yins already give you permission, so please photograph those and tag us if you're putting it on social media. And... Um, 
tons of cushions and kneeling supplies and anything that you might need. Please, uh, this room is yours. Make yourself comfortable. Move the chair out. Um, uh, sit yourself on the floor. You are going to be doing some video today, so just be aware that you're going to want to have some screen action wherever you're sitting just to be comfortable. Um, the room, I will be managing the room temperature. If you want to open a window just or a couple of windows, great. But if you open more than three windows, I can't control the temperature in the room anymore. And um, so I will close the windows after you. If you're having a little trouble with scent, uh, even though we are a scent-free campus, my suggestion is to move over and open a window. Um, that's, that would be for your comfort. Uh, to, 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 to. Bookstore for Mindful Shopping is open today. We're open. Tonight we have Jai Utal and Deborah Chamberlain-Taylor doing a solstice chanting event. So um, basically you want to be aware that you're going to be bum-rushed at 4 o'clock because they're going to be set for almost 200 people. So um, you're welcome to move into the bookstore. You're welcome to have conversations in the tea lobby. But there's going to be a team of about eight volunteers trying to get the chair out from under you to set for Jai Utal and his sound check that will be coming right after you. Um, if there's anything that the staff and I can do, please let us know. We're so grateful that you're sharing this Saturday with us. We're so grateful for all the teachers who are offering their day today. Yes, yes. Welcome, everyone, and I'm Bob. Can you hear me okay? No? Maybe we'll, we'll raise it up higher. This is the, 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 I'm looking at the audio. It is on. Hello? Aha. Very good. So, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in the rain and all. And um, this is a a day that uh, really means a lot to me personally as part of my practice honoring all life, this exploration of the first uh, precept of non-harming. And um, I want to just welcome um, also our panel, and Richard and I actually are your hosts, Richard Shankman, and then Bob Isaacson, James Berez, Gina Shaw, Patty Brightman, and Thanissara, who was scheduled to come, we got an email from her yesterday with the flu. And, and out of great compassion for herself and for others, it's best that she's not here. She's taking care of herself. But um, in the midst of her flu, she wrote a three-page letter <laughs> that's very powerful. Got it last night around 9 o'clock. And when um, I, I will be reading it later for you. And she really did want to be here. We're also um, going to be hearing, not live, but some videos were made specifically for this. And this will be shown later today with uh, Tara Brock and Will Tuttle. Uh, Don, I may not pronounce her name correctly, Mauricio. And... Um, Conda Mason, 
And so we'll be, um, and I, I mentioned Will Tuttle, is that right? Yeah. And um, so we'll be hearing from them. And I, I've seen all of their presentations and very uh, meaningful and, and touching. I thought maybe we would just begin with a short sit just to allow ourselves to arrive, to be present. So just taking a few moments to um, welcome yourself here. It's a beautiful place. It's Spirit Rock. Just sensing into the body, your body. Feeling the connection of the body sitting in the chair, the cushion, feet on the floor. Checking in to how you're feeling physically. Checking in as you feel into the body, perhaps what gets evoked from within is different thoughts and emotions and just to allow and let be. Just like a Meteorologist reports the outside weather like an internal meteorologist and just reporting and acknowledging the internal weather of our body, our thoughts and emotions. Just letting it be. Nothing needs to be figured out or analyzed. Being present. So we're just going to sit for a few minutes together and you're welcome just to continue with this mindful check-in or perhaps finding your way to the breath, being mindful of the breath as you breathe in and out or perhaps listening to sounds or feeling sensations in the body. So whatever object seems to be suitable for you, resting awareness, be it with the breath, different sounds or physical sensations as we enter into some silence being present. And within the silence, there may be times you'll notice that you've wandered off. And once you recognize that with kind attention, You're back again. And then just coming back to the breath, sounds or sensations, practicing in a kind way, being present.
Just settling into the now, one moment at a time, being present. Now I'd like to invite a transition to a reflection. Reflection is what brings you here today. It's to allow, you heard about this day of honoring all life, exploring the first precept of non-harming. So today's a day of some exploration of my own relationship to, to this and what does this mean? So just a few moments just to reflect upon what brings you here.
Thank you. And in just a few moments, um, we're going to break into some small groups. Could be two, three, four people. Maybe no more than four. <clears throat> and maybe to share with one another, introducing yourself and what brings you here to just get a sense of that and just to give you a little bit of an outline of the day. So we'll do these small groups. Then we'll come back to a large group and maybe harvest a few of your comments on what brings you here. Now speak more about the intention of the day. We'll show Tara Brock's video. Richard and I will offer a, a, a short Dharma talk. We'll be showing Will Tuttle's video. Bob Isaacson will introduce the film The Animals and the Buddha and share a little bit. We'll see the film The Animals of the Buddha and it, then we'll have lunch. After lunch, a short sit and then we'll have a panel of um, the uh, live as well as video recordings around 10 minutes each, for each from each of us about um, non-harming and what it means to us and perhaps what we're also living with in our own lives. And we'll be breaking into some small groups to continue this exploration and then gradually a harvest back with the community and the panel will be here to we'll be able to have conversation together and questions and then we'll end with uh, loving kindness sharing of the merit and at four o'clock fare thee well and helping to clear the space so that uh, they can begin the setup for this evening just a little bit of an overview of our day and so for now, maybe I'd like to just invite to, uh, to break into groups of threes or fours and introducing yourself and what brings you here. And we'll ring the bell in about five, ten minutes, ten minutes, and we'll come back. Thank you.
So about one more minute, one more minute. So please come on back into the big group. Thank your, you may wish to thank your, the people you were in the small group with. <clears throat> so we, we have some time. We're going to, are, are you going to do the microphone? If, okay. So we'll bring a microphone around and we just want to see if in, anything either that, that came up in the small group that you wish to just bring into the larger group. It could be just your own feelings, thoughts, questions, anything, or even things that you came in, brought in with you today. Uh, anyone? Yes, please. Thank you so much for this opportunity today, and I was really happy to meet with my group and to see our commonalities and our interests here today and our backgrounds. And um, a commonality we all had was looking at how our culture tends to objectify the non-human animals and how that has pervaded our language and our attitudes. And we're all here looking for with a a sense of inquiry about how we could be more effective and not just, what was he said, but not just non-harming, but proactive and helping advance this cause. Thank you. Hi. I'm, um, during the day, I would love to hear someone touch upon the mind and the ability of the human mind to compartmentalize and excuse and divide. 
Um, it's, there's so many people that um, will spend hours on Facebook looking at what I call shelter porn. You know, this poor pit bull that's been beaten, and then and then go and eat a eat a big steak or have chicken and eggs and everything. And I, and what fascinates me is 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 this you know, and it takes us, the Buddha talks so much about the mind, is this this ability of the human mind to sort of compartmentalize and this is okay, this is not okay, etc. And I, it just, I don't have any more to say about that, but it, it is a fascinating thing that touches upon what we're here today in very big ways. Okay, thank you. Yeah, bringing bringing this to our um, uh, Buddhism is is uh, very important to me right now. Um, I've been as ahimsa as I possibly could since age seventeen by refraining from any animal eating, and I have a started a nonprofit dog rescue because of what he just mentioned. So I understand and I spent my whole life as an animal rights activist putting myself in the thick of the suffering, um, watching all this in front of me so that I could bring a a presence uh, to it rather than watching it on a screen and bite my nails on the couch. Uh, Also been a lifelong Buddhist. Um, I'm happy that this is happening and I'm so happy that everybody here has the open mind to inquire upon themselves and I'm wondering if um, and and I'm very happy with what I heard from my group and just the open mindedness and and the the self inquiry is just so important sometimes it feels like oh this is going to be a bad thing for me because now I have to refrain from this in order to be a good Buddhist or a good ahimsa person or oh now I have to refrain from this too and for me it's more the opposite it's it's liberating to discover yet one more thing that I'm eating that causes animal suffering and it's actually a happy liberating relief feeling to have the opportunity to let that go in order to just be a more wholesome being in integrity, so I, I'd be interested if that is uh, addressed, because often it's like, oh, I can't eat that anymore, and maybe it, there's a higher good, maybe it nurtures you in higher ways to let go of that food than the craving for that food, and so I would love for, and um, hoping that all of this um, is... is um, addressed especially for us who are uh, living the Buddhist way. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, and I want to apologize for being late. Um, I'm actually here because I want to look at my capacity for self-harm. Not not harming myself. Well, I mean, it's all harming. Harming all of it. Um, But the anger that I've been feeling in the last month, I think I've made it through this era really well with a lot of practice and a lot of inner work. And all of a sudden, I'm finding myself feeling really, really angry. I've just been taking in all the what's going on in the field. And 
so it's like the really gross level of harm, like somebody's cutting me off in traffic now, and I wouldn't have been reactive at all, and now all of a sudden I'm like, ah, you know, so the field feels like I'm getting part of it, and I think that it's a little different than I think maybe what's intended. I hope we can touch on just, you know, the sort of the larger, the, you know, I think the act of violence seems like it's rooted in the same place no matter how refined or gross it may be. So I'm hoping we can touch on that. I don't know if what I just said makes any sense, but thank you for yeah. being here. Thank you. I just make a quick comment on that one is that I appreciate appreciate everything, what you've all brought in. We have a few more minutes for some others too, so we're not quite done. But just to respond to that is that, um, you know, this topic of non-harming is, it's big, it's wide, it's, it's, it's huge. And so it is true that there's uh, a kind of a, an emphasis happening here around this topic around uh, other beings and all of that around harming. But I want to encourage that uh, it's important, actually, that we all bring our own truth and what's up for us and what's important for each of us here, just as you are, and then to use the day, because I think the themes and the the attitudes of our heart and the, the inquiries we do and all of this just apply in whatever. So we want to make it uh, applicable for whichever way we're coming into this. And you may not, for yourself, have the exact emphasis that maybe is coming uh, in, in other aspects, but that's fine. You know, yeah. Um, thank you very much for offering this um, wonderful exploration. And um, in our small group here today, I found the commonality was caring. We care. Um, we care about others. We care about ourselves. And there's this consciousness of um, wanting to be here in a higher state of well-being for ourselves and for others. And I came here specifically today because just the whole subject, as, as um, you just mentioned, Richard, it's so expansive, non-harming. You know, it starts at the core, it can start at the cellular level, and it, it, can, it is so large, and how am I with it? And as we know, the first noble truth is, is suffering. So how am I with this natural law as well in my whole practice of non-harming? And um, I shared a little bit in the group that I just want to touch on is self-forgiveness. Um, because we have a past, we have a present. We don't know what the future is, but I can be in this moment and make a, make a new choice. But I have to forgive myself for things that I might have you know wanted to carry or hook into from my past whether it's non-harming another person verbally or whether it's um we talked a lot about ants <laughs> um or or whether it's 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 the animal um it's 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 very vast and i've just came here to be able to immerse myself in wiseness and in a community to explore and open up to something more Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll take a couple more, please, if there are any. Thank you. So um, I guess one thing I was hoping we would address today are insects. And as a head gardener of a very large property where 
we produce a lot of organic food that feeds a lot of people. Um, I handpick the bugs off of the plants, and um, some of them I kill. And I don't feel great about that. But I don't know how else to deal with squash bugs and um, caterpillars. So that's, that's something that I struggle with. I can put an ant outside, and I do put a spider outside. But um, I, I just, I'd love, to, I'd love to get more clarity on that. Uh, thank you. Uh, my sense of looking at non-harming has to do first primarily with connecting with the animals that I come in contact with. And many of those animals I come in contact with every other Saturday, every Saturday except this one and occasionally some others because I volunteer at a place that you all may be familiar with in San Rafael called Wild Care. Anyone know of that? Uh, before I say more, I want to invite you all to come there anytime. We're open all the time. If you come on Saturday afternoon, I'm there. And one of the, one of the features is you get to be very close to animals, a lot closer than looking at them at a tree or down a valley or even across the road. You can be two or three feet away from a turkey vulture or an opossum or a red-tailed hawk. The animals I care for cannot be released because they have some injury. Most of those injuries are psychological. For example, Vladimir, our turkey vulture, was raised by a human in his living room until he realized, I can't raise a turkey vulture in my living room. So Vladimir eventually came to wild care. He's been there about 30 years. One time he escaped. We didn't have an entryway then. I wasn't there then. He escaped, and a couple of days later he came back. He was so needy about living in wild care where he was cared for and fed, he could not make it in the outside world as a tricky vulture. So my first level of non-harming is how do you connect with the animals, whether it's an insect, a turkey vulture, a possum, and is put cracks in the boundary between human and non-human. And it's a lot of fun. I had a really great interaction with a very large red-tailed hawk. She can't be released. And I was feeding her some pieces of quail. And I went in, I put some quail on her perch, and it fell onto the floor. Now, you don't want to get onto the floor with a huge raptor above your head. That is just not safe for me. So uh, Grace and I looked at each other, beautiful eyes, and she jumped to another further perch. And so I bent down, picked up the piece of quail, and put it back on her perch that was near me where she eats, and then she flew back over and ate. I consider that communication. Thank you. Thanks for everyone. Thank you very much. Appreciate just everybody share, and there'll be more opportunities, as we've said, there'll be uh, for to, to come into the larger group also uh, uh, if if there's more that uh, wants to come out. Okay, so thank you. So Bob.
So um, thank you so much. I actually really appreciate uh, what has been shared, and um, I know there's more. And um, I really appreciate, uh, yes, part of the theme today is our relationship of not harming anim animals, but also included in the animal world is humans as well, and like getting cut off on the street, how we are with one another. So there's many, when we look at non-harming, it's a very wide area. So we, I definitely want to honor and acknowledge it, like how we are with each other, um, how we are with animals, how are we with insects. There's a lot of conundrums here in our relationship to non-harming. So we're going to explore this. And, you know, it may be that a lot of people here are in the camp of, um, that are coming here that are clear and uh, are committed to not hurting animals or eating them. And there may be some here that are wrestling with that. And I, one of the very important things for me, and I'll speak for us, is not to alienate anyone here. Like, how do we, when we, like, you know, we're in the holiday season and we come together at a table with our family or our friends, and, and maybe some of those people didn't vote to the, with the, to the same candidate that you voted for. And do we ostracize them? Do we alienate them? Could be our children, our partner. And how do we meet together and begin to explore and talk rather than to point fingers and to separate and to alienate. So I'm really wanting to bring that forward of how, how do, can we begin to create a safe conversation to explore this. You know, food and politics are big and they get personal. And, and it's very quick that we can start getting activated. And so how do we work with these forces within us and how do we be wise with them? This exploration, how do we be wise together? So um, I think that's all I want to say for the day. And that's, that's really um, in, the, in the heart of it, the intention that I want to bring to the day, that it's a safe container to explore. Some of us, again, we may be wrestling with this and not clear about it. And... Um, and actually, I'll speak later to, to the impossibility that we can truly do no harm completely all the time. On your human skin, one square inch lies 32 million bacteria. And so, yeah, we scratch and, you know, we might be taking out a, a few thousand. And, and so, and I'm not doing this to make you paranoid, but like we, we are actually, we're a human biome. We're about 10% human, 90% organisms. And how, but how, so how do we in our lives work towards causing the least harm? So we'll explore this more. So I want to introduce Tara Brock, who is um, going to be our first video. And actually, I'll just read a little bit about Tara, though probably many of you know of her. She's a meditation teacher, psychologist, um, in, and Buddhist teacher. And she's done a lot of work with emotional healing, spiritual awakening, has practiced and taught meditation over 35 years with an emphasis in Vipassana or mindfulness or insight meditation. She's a senior teacher and founder of the Insight Meditation Community in Washington, D.C., author of Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, um, 
Tara's podcasts are downloaded um, nearly a million times every month in over 150 countries. She's um, really um, speaks from her heart to many, many people in a very truly kind and very sincere, humble and wise person. So we'll, behind us, there'll be a screen and, and we're going to shut off some of the lights and this will be a, a video that Tara has prepared. Thank you. And I think humanity is going to look back um, at this, at the thousands of years of violating uh, animals from other species. If we were looking at it another planet, if one species on another planet was doing what we do to non-human animals and we saw it from a distance, um, we'd be appalled. But we're desensitized. So meat-eaters on this planet average about 7,000 animals in a lifetime. And for me personally, this is the um, place of seeing uh, bias and overcoming this tendency to create unreal other. This is the one that's actually the hardest for me to talk about. And I wanted to name that with you because um, I care a lot. It's very emotional in me. It's like um, sensing a concentration camp in my backyard that is just going on and on and on um, with all the suffering of, of animals. And it's hard to talk about because we as a collective are so habituated to othering animals that it's often not that conscious. There's an assumption they're just not as important. They're more important things. And we're not habituated to seeing the daily violence that goes into our daily diet, like we don't connect the dots. And um, we don't want to feel bad about ourselves, so when the topic comes up, there's a defendedness. And um, either we feel guilty deep down that we're participating in something wrong, or we're outraged that another person's trying to make us feel morally wrong. So there's a lot of um, bombs that can go off in, in this territory of othering. So my hope is that as we, each of us sincerely wants to widen the circles of our heart, that we can explore this too together um, without um, guilt or shame, but really asking the same questions. Where does it hurt? Can we look at where it hurts for these other animals? Um, and can we see the gold? Can we see the sacredness of life? Share a bit about my own story, my own unfolding in this domain. Because um, I figured, I, I just wanted to be real personal about it in this, in this class. Um, that I became a vegetarian when I was 21, when I joined a spiritual community. So that's almost 45 years ago. I'm 
65. And between now and then I've been a vegetarian except for a handful of years when I got sick and I started eating chicken and fish because I thought that was going to help. And it didn't. And then I went back to being vegetarian and then I became vegan um, because the more I learned about the meat industry, the more um, what I thought was vegetarian and wasn't causing as much harm was actually no different. Um, I remember um, one time being at a retreat uh, down at this really beautiful center in the Shenandoah. And during our early morning hours, there's a lot of farmland around, uh, we could hear the sounds of these mother cows lowing. Uh, They had just been separated the week earlier from their calves, and um, so they were grieving. And as many of you know, in the meat and dairy industry, farmers continually impregnate cows, and then they separate from the calves, and then impregnate them again and separate them. And there's a a deep mother-child attachment, like in all mammals. So listening to this. I mean, you can imagine sitting in this early morning meditation and that's the sound we're hearing is this grieving cries of mother cows. And it broke my heart and it broke other people's hearts. In fact, we started in the afternoon doing a loving-kindness practice for them and, and so on. But it was really the first time that I imagined close in, where does it hurt? that these were real beings, sentient beings, and they were suffering. Um, So over recent years, as I mentioned, I've I've learned more. And for a while I was eating eggs as being a vegetarian, and then I found out that no matter where we get them, organic, free-range, etc., when the chickens hatch, when the baby chickens hatch from their eggs, all the, ma- all the males are ground up alive. And check it out. That just happens. It's like it, at all, even the most organic free-range places, that's what they do with the male babies. They just grind them up alive. And um, the females, then their beaks are cut because they're in such squash quarters that they would scratch each other too much. Of this. So they get their beaks cut. So I've never toured an industrial farm or slaughterhouse, but I have watched films. And I do it on purpose because I feel like part of waking up out of bias is learning to look right into where the suffering is that we're not willing to look at. So I've kind of sat through them. And of course they're horribly disturbing. Like if I imagine my dog going through what these other mammals are going through and, um, you know, in some way living in a tiny pen so it can't move and then, you know, being herded and terrified into a slaughter. Like they ground them up and they know what's going on because other other animals are being killed right by them. It's inconceivable. So I mentioned that it's so hard for me to talk about because um, it makes me weep. And um, so I have this prayer that more and more will move towards... uh, a plant-based diet. Not a rigidity like everyone should be a vegan. It's not that. It's can we collectively open our eyes to suffering and respond by moving in a direction. Um, some people do it for because they're, they really get the effect on planet Earth. It's considered the second 
um, biggest environmental hazard to the earth, the first being fossil fuels. Some do it for health, but for whatever the reason, it's part of compassion to, to widen that circle. So we're exploring unreal othering and how to come above the line, wake up out of it, and to know that all unreal othering is interconnected. So whether we're unreal othering someone in our family because they're not cooperating, or someone who's perceived of difference for their race or their religion, all of it reinforces the same contraction of the heart, disconnection from compassion. I was reading uh, Dr. A. Breeze Harper, and she's the author of, Sis- of Sista Vegan. She's, it's a book about black vegan, black female vegans. Well, she organized a conference, and it's called The Vegan Praxis, Praxis of Black Lives Matters. And it's really cool because she's show, the whole purpose of the conference is to show anti-racism work goes hand in hand with the dismantling of all oppressive systems, including those that abuse and oppress non-human animals. Dick Gregory says this, he says, animals and humans suffer and die alike. Violence causes the same pain, the same spilling of blood, the same stench of death, the same arrogant, cruel, and brutal taking of life. We don't have to be part of it. So we close together with the reflection of how individually and collectively we can deepen our commitment to caring in action, to waking up these hearts. So I just want to say a few words, uh, maybe maybe 10 minutes or less. Um, <clears throat> I was reflecting as I'm sitting here, and I was feeling a lot of appreciation to be around, and, and in my mind I thought, you know, to be around such like-minded people. But I realize, you know, there's a few people here I know, but most, most of you um, I don't know at all. And so I realize, of course, we're different in many, many ways. We may not even have the same goals and needs and wishes, but I feel confident that uh, we share certain commonalities and, you know, you wouldn't come to a place like this for a day on a theme like this if you didn't want to live in a way that was, and I'll just throw out a few uh, adjectives, you'll have to fill in your own, uh, but, you know, we probably all want to live in a way where our hearts are 
more open and less closed off, both to ourselves and to others. And I'm sure we all want to live in a way that's, you could say, less reactive and more more wisely responsive in life and things like this. And these are the Dharma qualities that, uh, that we strive to cultivate. And one way you could summarize all this is I feel confident that uh, all of us want to live in a way that creates less suffering for ourselves and for others and that wants to create more well-being, again, for our others and ourselves, right? And in a way, you could, that's one actually kind of a beautiful way. I, I hadn't thought about it. You could, you could um, uh, encapsulate the whole Dharma in that way, living in a way that creates less and less suffering for ourselves and others and creates more, you could say, happiness. I like the word well-being for ourselves and others. So if, um, if that resonates for you, then I'll just offer one way that I like to hold that because um, sometimes we... Um, I'll share one one example for you. I have an aspiration. It's a real aspiration I take very seriously to live in a way that my heart never closes off to any living beings. And, I, and that's for real. And of course, I have many, many opportunities to see where um, more work needs to be done, right? Because we're human beings. And, um, and I, li- I like to hold it that way because... Um, um, you know, I don't have to go looking for suffering. I don't have to go, you know, it, it, hopefully happiness and joy finds me, but the suffering, it finds me too. And I don't have to look for times when uh, my heart closes off because I just wait around and, um, um, you know, situations, people, things will come. And so my job then is, is to show up. And well, the way I like to hold it is, is that when those come, I like to see them as my teacher. And I just want to offer this as we're here today doing our own exploration. The people have already shared in the group that we may be coming with a different emphasis, different wishes, needs, uh, different life histories, just everything uh, that we're each bringing. And so as we go through our own explorations, hearing others, but also sharing ours with others to whatever extent we feel comfortable sharing, um, you know, we'll have to see for ourselves what may or may not get evoked. It may, may not be much, but it could bring up. It just depends how, how the day will go for you. And if some challenges, especially in difficulty, well, first of all, when it's not challenges and difficulties, if, if the parts in your heart and mind are illuminated that are, we use the word wholesome, I like the word beautiful, uh, uh, I don't know if that's traditional Dharma language, but where our minds are naturally gladdened and we, we connect in with our own sincere intentions and aspirations. You know, that's important to know those. We say we want to get to know our suffering, the cause of suffering, and, and its ending, which is important. But the other half, fully half, of the equation is to get to know everything that's good and right with us. And so we, because, and that's not egotistical, we, we need ready access to that. So when we need it to support us, and there's this idea of gladdening our hearts and minds. So you may come into contact with all of that today, but you may also come into contact with the parts that are <clears throat> more challenging, difficult, or evocative in some way, uh, and when, when, uh, in some difficult way. And when that happens, the way I like to hold it, and I'll just offer it for you, you can see if this is something that resonates for you or not. I like to think of this idea of it being my teacher 
meaning I don't have to judge myself. I don't have to judge others. I don't have to get in this conflict with myself an adversarial relationship with my own being. I can let myself be, but then let it teach me. Just like when, and I won't give you plenty of examples these days, I, I can't tell you how many Dharma talks I've gotten out of just politics and not who's right or wrong, but just my own inner process of how do I deal with this? How do I live in a way where my heart doesn't close off? So um, <clears throat> if and when those times come up, it's how we hold them and how we relate to them. That's what I want to offer. And if we see it, oh, this is my teacher, then we don't have to um, fall into, you know, this word judging is kind of tricky because there's the negative connotation that's unhelpful kind of judging, and none of us want to be you know, judgmental in that way. But there's judgmental in the sense of wise discernment, and that's different. And if we bring wise discernment, we hold it with an open heart, we hold ourselves and others really with love. And then my own experience has been, anyone can come tell me anything <coughs> if it's done in love. You know, I, that may not be true for everybody. I'm not saying you have to go tell anyone anything today, but I'm just saying, even or in myself, something difficult, but if I can meet myself with love, even the places where it's out of alignment with whatever my intention or aspiration is, I could go, that can happen, we're human beings, okay, sure. But it can also be like, you know, that is true about me. I did fall right on my, flat on my face there, didn't I? I totally, whatever, screwed that up. It's like, oh, you know what, I, I am, that, can, that is a force that can be in me. Well, let me hang out with this, where's that about and everything? And you hold it just like you'd hold a good friend. So I just want to, uh, putting that out um, in, in the spirit of, well, for me, it's, it's part of how I, I like to meet challenges in life as my teacher. But also today, uh, as we're here together, you may see if that attitude helps you. And then it creates the safety and, and, and the real holding each other with love and then see what, you know, what might arise. So thank you. That's what I'd like to offer. So, yeah, I'll speak a little bit, too. And then, of course, later as the day unfolds, you'll hear from everyone. And um, when, I, when I was a child, I remember one time in elementary school being on the playground and seeing some kids being mean and hurting the feelings of, of some other kids. And it was a very memorable moment of like this harming. I, I sensed it. Even though I was like 10 years old, just sensed this. And, and, and there was this part of me inside that became very clear that I didn't want to, as best I could, to do that. I could see the fear and the pain of one getting that harm and, and not wanting to, to do that. And, you know, of course, I'm 65, and as I look back in these years, I've definitely caused some harm to others, um, mostly unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally as well. So I want to just acknowledge that, and life is an incredible learning, and to reconcile as I hopefully am growing with more awareness. 
And uh, about 30 years ago, I became <clears throat> very clear that I wanted to choose to live a plant-based way, that I, I didn't want to contribute towards um, eating any animals. And it was for, definitely for, clearly for a spiritual reason and for health. And uh, obviously the environment, uh, the, the, the use of uh, the methane and so forth that's given off with, with cattle is incredible as it affects climate change. So that's uh, another reason. But at the time, 30 years ago, climate change was, was not as popularly known. It was definitely from a spiritual reason and a health reason that I chose to do this. And um, also being a long-time Dharma practitioner, I was always very, um, um, you know, the very first precept in Pali is panatipata we ramanite kapadam tamadiyami. It's a Burmese pronunciation of the Pali. And um, the literal, often what people say is this is, I undertake the training of of non-killing, but panatipata, is very similar to the meditation instruction that you get when you practice called anapanasati, cultivating the mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati. But panatipata means that I'm taking on the commitment or the intention to not take away any living being's breath. That's the literal translation of the first precept is not taking away any living being's breath. And that has a different type of dimensionality to me inside my body and heart. I'm very touched uh, also with this one story of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, and probably many of you know his story of leaving the palace at the age of 29 when he encountered these messengers of illness, aging, death, and then the fourth heavenly messenger that there's a possibility to awaken, to grow with wisdom. And of course, the the stories about him going on this multi-year sojourn, mastering different meditative practices, particularly in absorption, jhana, and then being that he could calm his mind down, still not understanding though the meaning of suffering in life, he left these practices to go to practice self-mortification and thought this was the way to enlightenment and there he practiced very severely limiting particularly his food intake to one grain of rice a day. As time went by, eating one grain of rice a day, he became very skeletal. The story goes, he put his hand on his belly and almost failed his tailbone and realizing that he was at the brink of collapse and would probably die if he didn't take care of himself and realized um, the futility of these extreme self-mortification practices. And the story goes, he regained his health and he took a vow and went underneath a tree and decided to stay there. He'd been to so many different teachings, been to so many different teachings, and I'm going to stay here, he said, to leave if my skin falls off. There's no other place to go, no other teaching or teacher to, to meet I've been through so much, I'm going to stay here with my own direct experience. So taking this commitment, this vow to sit here underneath this tree. And there's one, there's a story, and again, maybe we'll never know fully what really happened, but the story goes that as he's sitting underneath this tree, he recalled the memory of when he was a little boy. And that memory was when he was sitting underneath another tree. And it was one of those incredible, beautiful days. 
And so he recalled this memory and brought a lot of happiness into his heart, that memory of that beautiful day, the wind, the temperature, everything was just right. But then also, as he recalled that day, another memory arose, and that was the memory of looking over on a field, and there was some farmers there with some oxen. And, and then he, was, he recalled, like, as the blade, the plow blade, went into the earth, he almost sensed the suffering and the crying of the worms of the beings. This had a huge impact. And after they recalling that memory, he began to become mindful of the breath in and the breath out. I mean, we'll never fully know, but this, is, this, this story touches me in a deep way. So because of that suffering of the beings, as he directed his attention toward the breath, rather than going into complete absorption that he'd been trained to do before, he shifted his focus of awareness, the penetration of impermanence, began to experience the breath in and the breath out, being aware of this ever-changing nature of things. And it was supposedly, this is the beginning of what's known as Vipassana insight meditation, the shifting from concentration into insight. And as he began to penetrate into impermanence, it gave rise to these powerful realizations about suffering, its causes, that there's a way to lessen suffering through the Noble Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, or the Four Great Realizations of the Buddha. But what I love about that story was like, it was like that sensing of the suffering of the beings that transformed him and began to practice meditation in a way that he had never done before, that perhaps hardly anyone he ever knew had done, because it was always about getting absorbed. But this was focusing on impermanence, and that was evoked by this memory of the suffering of beings. So I love these teachings in the Dharma. They are so much based on non-harming. And it's a conundrum. Um, I'll just name that. Um, As a Buddhist monk in Burma, we were dependent upon... um, I had been in Burma as a monk at one point in my life and and with alms bowls, and we would go around barefoot into the villages and and people would offer us food. And we were instructed to... that the the monastics are like a field of merit. And so whatever is offered, we want to offer that opportunity to receive because it's so beautiful for a person to want to make an offering, to complete the circuit, to receive it. But we were instructed to say that if we knew that someone killed an animal for us, we can't accept it. If it, however, is left over in, in their house and they're just giving it to the, to the monk, and, and then he, so he can accept leftovers. And so as, as, as a monk, I would accept meat. And um, I was a vegetarian at that time, but I decided this is what I needed to do, and so I'd gather it and walk back a few miles barefoot. Everything's just kind of getting all mixed together. I lost a lot of weight during that time. But um, I still tried to maintain my vegetarian ways, but also at the same time um, accepting meat because this was an act of um, people making an offering. But I also want to say that it's not so clear-cut. It's a gray area. Like, what's the difference between going to Safeway or to a supermarket and buying a piece of meat and... um, and then offering, and often people like to offer to the monastics because you get more merit if you do, if you, if you give them good foods. And of course, um, 
when you buy meat at a supermarket, there is some accounting system going on that is keeping track of how many pieces of meat are sold because they got to order for next week. And so then it continues the perpetuation of, well, more animals are going to have to be killed because we need to have this meat. And so it's, it's just a conundrum. But speaking of conundrums, someone brought up, you know, what do we deal with ants? I live in Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz lives on top of an ant hill. How do we work with ants? How do we work with termites? Many of us, if we don't have a lot of money, but we're lucky enough to be able to have enough money to be able to buy a house but have to borrow it from the bank, one of the things that the bank is going to say with their investment, we need a termite report. And they won't give you a loan if it's a class A termite infestation. And, and like you're going to have to get it tented or you're going to have to get some direct type of whatever they do um, to, to, to eliminate them. And so how do we work with termites? How do we work with bacteria? I had a necrotic fasciitis flesh-eating bacteria in 1996. It was either me or the bacteria. And I needed massive doses of antibiotics and multiple surgeries for, to, to get better. And of course, sometimes we get sick with, with cold bacterial infections. And so how do we deal with this? So I just want to name the conundrums mice, rats, um, you know, even the technology that we have, the clothes that we're wearing, who knows if this was made in places that were abusive, exploitation, even even our nice Priuses or hybrid cars, like what type of exploitation or what type of effect does it have on the environment? So what I'm pointing to is it's not so clear. It's a gray area. How do we reconcile all of this? So perhaps today's a day of looking at how do we, can, we can re- reconcile what we can do and what we're unable to do. And so I just want to just bring this up as a, an area of exploration. That You know, I struggle with this. I want to, and I, my own self personally, I, I think my reconciliation and awareness grows to try to do the least harm possible. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But I love these teachings within the Dharma. It is so um, immersed in these qualities of non-harming as a principle to try to live with and to. And again, coming back to the human worlds, not only um, the Holocaust that we're doing with animals, but again, how are we with each other? How are we with each other? And how are we with ourselves, with the the narratives and the stories that we've identified with that are very self-harming, that are are causing us a lot of pain, insufficiency, inadequacy, shame. So the non-harming relates to for ourselves, with each other, with the animal world, with the insect world, with this planet. So there's lots of areas to uh, investigate. So I'm going to pause at this point, and um, we're going to show uh, Will Tuttle his um, video, and he, he really, um, I viewed it, and it's very powerful, and speaks about the, the five training precepts that we as practitioners are trying to uh, live with, the precept of not killing, not stealing, not causing harm with sexuality, our wise speech, speech that's honest, not to lie or slander, and our relationship to intoxicants and not getting intoxicated. And so Will is going to give a very uh, beautiful, very passionate um, 
talk about this in Non-Harming. And Will Tuttle is an author of um, the World Peace Diet that's been published in 16 languages. He's a recipient of the Courage of Conscience Award and Empty Cages Prize. He's the author of several books on spirituality, intuition, and social justice. He's been a vegan since 1980, a former Zen monk, um, beautiful person. He actually would love to be here, but he's in uh, Malaysia right now. Is that Malaysia? Or is this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he extends his heart to you all, and, and we'll get to meet him via the video with the thing that he's prepared. Thank you. This is Dr. Will Tuttle, author of a book called The World Peace Diet, and I'm delighted to be able to share for a few minutes some of the reflections on the first precept, not to harm other living beings unnecessarily. So uh, my point of view on this whole thing is that as a Buddhist practitioner, uh, that other living beings, non-human animals, are absolutely significant in their capacity to suffer. And that we are, as Buddhists and as human beings, called to take their interests as seriously as we would like our interests to be taken. So in my own story, my own case, I was uh, born and raised in a typical family eating the usual meals of lots of meat, dairy products and eggs back in the 1950s in Concord, Massachusetts. I kind of grew up around the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau and Emerson and Alcott, and uh, it's fascinating to see how they were influenced actually by the ancient Buddhist uh, and Hindu traditions to move toward uh, plant-based ways of eating. Alcott was kind of famous, actually, for um, his vegetarianism back in the 1840s. And he actually started the first uh, vegan uh, community in the United States called Fruitlands, where they wouldn't eat meat, dairy products, or eggs, or wear leather, or even cotton, because it came from slaves in the South in, in the 1840s. So some of that may have rubbed off on me at some point, but I remember uh, it took quite a while. I, I worked in the summers on a beautiful little dairy farm nestled in the Green Mountains of Vermont uh, as a teenager, and I killed my own chickens, and we killed the cows, the dairy cows, uh, ourselves, because when their production would decline after only uh, five years, uh, even though they would live to be 25 years old, we would kill them. So. I grew up understanding that that animals have to be killed and you have to cut their throats. I mean, that's what it was. We were doing that. And uh, I didn't have a problem with it because I was completely indoctrinated into the narrative of our society that we are infinitely superior to animals, that they don't have a soul, they taste good. If you don't eat them, you're definitely going to die within 24 hours of a protein deficiency or a calcium deficiency. So that's just how it's set up. Fortunately for me, after I left college, which was uh, in Maine, in 1975, I decided to go on a spiritual pilgrimage with my younger brother, uh, Ed, doing uh, Ramana Maharshi's practice of self-inquiry and asking the question, who am I? We thought we would walk all the way to California, and we got as far as Buffalo, <laughs> New York, uh, and um, after a few months, and we headed south. We actually walked all the way to Alabama, and we ended up at a Zen uh, center in Alabama, in the Korean tradition in Huntsville, Alabama. 
Uh, but on the way, we stopped for a few weeks at a, a community called The Farm. And The Farm in 1975 was the largest hippie commune in the world. Started right in San Francisco uh, with Stephen Gaskin and the Monday Night Class in Golden Gate Park. And there were 900 people living there and they were all vegetarians. They said we're vegetarians. We would today call them vegans. And uh, they didn't eat any meat, dairy products, or eggs, wear any leather, many of them. And they did it for ethical reasons to reduce harm to animals and also because of hunger. Uh, they explained to me when I got there that most of the food we're growing on this planet uh, we're feeding to the animals while people are going hungry and that food shortages are the primary cause of uh, conflict in the world, essentially the injustice. And so they were eating lower on the food chain in, so that there would be more peace in the world and more abundance for everyone. So that was it. I, that was it for me. I, I saw this example of 900 people. They were very deeply influenced by the Japanese Buddhist tradition. Uh, Stephen Gaskin was a student of Suzuki Roshi, and so that was part of it, was that they were inspired by Buddhist uh, practice and the five precepts, and uh, also just by the environmental concerns and, and social justice concerns to, uh, to eat a plant-based diet and, and way of living. So I became a vegetarian in 1975, and a few years later I was out here in San Francisco, I was living at uh, the Tibetan Buddhist Center in uh, called KDK, and, and then also in studying uh, Korean Buddhism. And I became a vegan in 1980 when I understood a little better the routine abuse of dairy cows and hens uh, for their products. I became a vegan just about uh, 40 years ago now. And I always say the smartest thing I ever did, really. It's been tremendous in terms of health and happiness and everything else. Um, but I didn't do it for, my, for myself, I really did it for the animals. Uh, and a few years later, in 1984, I ended up deciding to go and become a Zen monk in Korea. So I shaved my head and took vows and was living in a, a monastery called Songwangsa in South Korea in the Choge Order. And I discovered for the second time in my life I was in a vegan community. The whole community had been practicing what we would call veganism for about 770 years, something like that, since the 1200s. So there had been no meat, no dairy, no eggs, no wool, silk, leather, fur, no harming of insects. That was essentially the practice of that monastery. And so when I came back to the States, eventually, and uh, I decided eventually to get a PhD at Berkeley and, and go on to other things, I felt like I had these roots of veganism that are really rooted not so much veganism as ahimsa. I think that's, a, in a way, a better word. The idea is non-harmfulness. This is basically what we're talking about, not just merely theorizing about it, but practicing it. And so when we look at the uh, five precepts, the five basic precepts, we can see that all five of them we are routinely breaking when it comes to non-human animals. We're killing them of course, uh, by the millions every day, by the, actually by the billions every day when we include marine animals for food. Uh, we're talking about trillions of animals every year that we're killing, according to the estimates. And so it's a massive industrialized killing machine that we support with just one thing, our votes, our dollar bills, right? That's what drives it. And so we're breaking the first precept because when I pay for animal-based foods, I'm paying someone somewhere to kill an animal. 
and they're doing it specifically for me. Uh, even though that particular animal is not killed for me, I'm going to demand through my purchase that an animal be killed. And dairy is always killing. Eggs are always killing. You can't own other living beings without harming them. Even having the idea in my mind that I own a living being, that that being is my property, that is also himsa. I understand this I, uh, now, but you know, before I didn't understand this. But you know, living this and, and studying and practicing, uh, it's really, to me, enormously liberating to see that the five precepts are really tools for awakening. So with the animals, we're killing them, we're stealing from them, right? That's the whole point of animal agriculture is we're stealing their flesh, we're stealing their milk, we're stealing their eggs, we're stealing their lives, we're stealing their time, we're stealing their children. We steal everything. We steal their purposes. And then besides killing and stealing, we're also sexually abusing them on a massive scale. And you can't have animal agriculture without the sexual abuse of female animals and the stealing of their babies. On any animal agriculture operation, large or small, it's the same story. I own you, I own your baby, I'm gonna kill your baby and impregnate you again and steal your baby again and kill your baby again and then kill you. I mean, that's, it's a, a rape and kill operation. Whether it's a large commercial operation or a small backyard operation, it's the same. And, and of course, deception is the fourth one, not to lie. And these animals are always being deceived as well. Of course, we're, we're luring and deceiving fish, and we're deceiving these animals with, with uh, slaughterhouse ramps that they don't know what they're going to. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, liquors and drugs, we're, we're drugging them. Uh, there's over 10,000 different drugs and hormones that are inflicted on these animals without their permission to harm them, to exploit them, to abuse them, to fatten them up uh, for our use. So all five precepts uh, we are breaking on a massive scale. And these animals are in our hands. They're vulnerable. Uh, so our, our uh, practice, I feel, is to live the teachings the beings that are in our hands, who are vulnerable in our hands, how do we treat them? This is the question. And uh, the beautiful thing is we can discover that there are new nutrients that we need to be healthy, that we have to harm animals to get. This is the great gift. We've all been given the gift of a physical body that does not require any animal to suffer to get all the nutrients that we need to be healthy. And having discovered that, then why would we harm animals unnecessarily? Just for our taste? or because we're afraid to be different. So the teachings, I think, are very clear on this, and it's great to see the awakening that's happening. Buddhism is about awakening, and I'm so grateful to be part of this awakening. And I want to thank all of you for, uh, for caring and for being part of this exploration and awakening and really the healing uh, of our society and of ourselves as we awaken out of the delusion of seeing other living beings as mere property to be used by us. Thank you very much. That was very powerful. I'd like to uh, introduce Bob Isaacson, who's the co-founder and president of the only international Buddhist animal rights and advocacy organization in the world. It's called Dharma Voices for Animals, DVA. 
He's practiced the Dharma and the Vipassana Theravadan tradition for over 20 years. He was a civil civil human rights attorney for 25 years, specializing in defending people against the death penalty. Bob currently teaches the Dharma, leads two sanghas, and leads day-long and weekend retreats in the San Diego area. And he's gone through the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leader Program. And so I really want to thank Bob for being here. And just to let you know that... um, We've all decided as a teaching community that we are not, that any dana that is offered to the teachings is going to go to the Dharma Voices of America. We want to support this. Uh, can everyone hear me? So, good morning, everyone. Uh, I am very grateful to be here. Uh, with, uh, I just want to thank Bob and Richard. Actually, you did uh, retreat maybe about six, seven years ago. Uh, it was at the, the other, the now extinct meditation hall. And I, I was sitting, a February retreat came down, of course, for it. But it's so... Um, so wonderful that you uh, that you're doing this, and thank James for being here, one of my teachers. And great to see Patty. We had breakfast together, and finally meet Gina. Uh, very grateful uh, to uh, to all of you for doing this, um, and for all of you for being here. It's so uh, so special. I'd like to do something like this at uh, every major Dharma center, not only in the U.S. but in the world. So I want to tell you first a little bit about Dharma Voices for Animals. And then about our film, uh, some things you might not know just by looking at the film, uh, some uh, a scoop about it. Um, so Dharma Voices for Animals, as Bob mentioned, uh, is the only uh, animal advocacy, animal rights, international Buddhist organization in the whole world. So when Patty and I and uh, Kim Sterla and David Blatt started our organization back in 2011, you know, we thought we all... We all practiced uh, uh, Vipassana, Theravada, Buddhism. And we thought we'd you know, talk a bit to Spirit Rock, see what we can get going, and maybe a few other places. And little did we know, it blossomed into a, an international organization. We have major projects in the Buddhist countries of Sri Lanka, where there's 15 million Buddhists, and also in Vietnam, where there are 60, 60 million Buddhists. Um, so... So about DVA, we're, we're a nonprofit and uh, uh, registered corporation in California. We have 501c3 uh, standing with, with the uh, U.S. government. It's allowed us to raise some funds. We have a staff in Sri Lanka. Charles, who's back there now, is our communications director. Sitting, He's actually hearing everything that's going on, but he's sitting back by the table. You know, we've got uh, – we have uh, some – some freebies, uh, brochures and all. We've got some books, a couple books that Patty wrote herself with other people uh, and some other things. So take a look when you have a chance. And also we have DVDs of the film you're going to see. So we started Dharma Voices for Animals, or as we call it, DVA, because animals have no voice. You know, they cannot come into a Buddhist community and ask, why are you doing this to me? Why are you supporting my suffering? Or as Will put it, my good friend Will, uh, why are you paying people to kill me? Why are you paying people to kill my children? 
So we're their voice. They didn't pick us, uh, but no one else is doing it. So we started, and now many people are doing it. You heard from, from Tara, and I wish Tana Saro was here, but she, you'll hear from her, her own words, because she can't be here because of an illness. So people now all around are, 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 are talking about this. This is the point of DVA. We want people to talk about the suffering of animals. We want to bring their suffering into the meditation halls and into the boardrooms of these centers uh, because they can't come in. They, how different would it be if an animal, uh, a chicken or turkey, could actually talk our language and would come into a, a meeting, a teacher meeting somewhere at some retreat, uh, maybe a, a meeting about what food is going to be served and, and say, well, what about me? But, of course, they can't do that. So they're unheard. Uh, Tara put it beautifully in, in her talk. So the main point of DVA is to give them a voice in uh, communities, Buddhist communities here in the United States, but also around the world. So a little bit about the film. What about this film? So we, we realized we needed something. We needed something uh, that people can, could view in all countries, different languages, different cultures. So we came up with this film. I believe it was in uh, 14, 2014. And we were lucky enough to have Keegan Kuhn uh, agree to produce our film. How many here have heard of Keegan? Keegan Kuhn? K-U-H-N, yeah. So Keegan has done two, uh, two films. One is Cowspiracy, which talks about the, envir the devastating environmental impact of uh, eating animals and eating animal products. And also What the Health, which is a, uh, a film about the uh, uh, health benefits, the enormous health benefits of uh, plant-based uh, diet. And those two films, Cowspiracy and What the Health, uh, Keegan um, has as a co-producer none other than Leonardo DiCaprio. So those two films are getting enormous play around the world. In China alone, millions of people are watching Cowspiracy. Uh, so in our film, Animals and the Buddha, which you will see shortly, uh, on, it's been on YouTube for a while. We've also been distributing DVDs around the world. Uh, we have something like 140,000 views, but I know that when many times when these films are being seen, they're being seen in Dharma centers around the world. They're being downloaded and shown. So we figure um, the number must be somewhere over a million people have actually seen our film. Uh, the film has been translated into 12 languages, including Chinese, the language spoken by the most number of people in the world, also Spanish. So I'd like to share um, a short story I have been going to Asia. I'll be taking my eighth trip in February. And I go to Vietnam, where we have a major project around the country, uh, and also to uh, Sri Lanka, where our other major project is. My first trip to Vietnam was in 2016. And um, someone I knew in another organization set up a meeting with me and one of the several leading Buddhists in the country. His name is the Venerable Tik Tan Huan, and he's also trained by Tik Nhat Han, who's a good friend of his. Um, he has uh, two PhDs. He came into the room not speaking a word of English, and I didn't speak a word of Vietnamese. I mean, I could say hello, goodbye, and a few other things. 
And the first thing he said to me, I had two interpreters, one on each side, English, Vietnamese interpreters. The first thing he said was, I love your film. I want to work with you. He had seen our film because it was available in the Vietnamese language. So the film then becomes an enormous way of breaking down the bar barriers of uh, culture and language. So, and, and then within a short time, he visited me in my home in San Diego. Uh, he was there for almost two weeks, and we decided to work together. So he is our, our director. So this is a, an example of the power of Keegan's uh, film, uh, what, what is possible. A couple of, you'll, you'll recognize a lot of folks in the film, including Bob and Richard, prominently, uh, Guy and Sally Armstrong, and then Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo, who is uh, a member of our advisory uh, council. Uh, she visited, I think she was speaking here, or gave a retreat uh, at Spear Rock. I saw her uh, and interviewed her uh, on camera, so you could see our interviews if you follow us on Facebook. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Charles has been taking care of that. So we really have a wide, wide um, audience on social media. And our website has been recently revamped. Just go to dharmavoicesforanimals.org. So, so Tenzin Palmo is in there many times, as is uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. And pay particular attention, if you would, pay particular attention, if you would, to Bhikkhu Bodhi talking about what happens when you order a chicken or a, um, a, a piece of another animal's flesh or body at a, at a supermarket or at a restaurant? Uh, pay attention to what, what he says, because it's really quite powerful. Also, we have uh, Mateau Ricard, famous uh, French uh, monk who's in the Tibetan tradition, uh, was a well-known physicist. And people and monks and nuns from different cultures, different languages, and different Buddhist traditions. Uh, I also want to acknowledge that there is some graphic uh, uh, footage in there. There was, you know, we, we talked a lot about this, and there, on the one hand, people wanted to put a lot in there. There are films. There's just a, there's a little bit of graphic um, uh, photo in there, uh, and if you want to see more, because you know, you can't go into slaughterhouses, you can't go into factory farms and see what they're doing to animals. They won't let you in. There's barbed wire, fences, watchdogs, electrified fences, because they don't want us to see what, uh, what happens in there. But there are some really good films where people, brave people, uh, that we've talked about, we've mentioned them, not by name, but by what they're doing, go in with hidden cameras, and they film what's going on. You can see the film called Meet Your Meat, M-E-A-T, your M-E... No, no. <laughs> I knew I'd blow that. Meet, M-E-E-T, your meet, M-E-A-T, narrated, right, I got that? Okay, narrated by, uh, by Alec Baldwin. And also you uh, can watch a film called If Slaughterhouses Had Glass Walls, We Would All Be Vegetarian. And that is narrated by Paul McCartney. So that, that, I mean, those are some much more graphic films with some real footage. But, you know, if we're, this is a decision of life or death for um, um, innocent and vulnerable creatures. Tyrus said 7,000, I've heard 20,000 animals are eaten by the average American. 
uh, who's on a um, is not on a vegetarian or plant-based diet. So this is really important. And for those of you that are in a you know place of deciding what you're going to do, I wasn't always. I'm vegan. I've been vegan for 17 years, vegetarian for 40 years. But you know, there's a period of my life I was neither. I d didn't open to this this suffering. Now that I've opened to it, I understand that people were in different places. We're all in different places. So I hope this is a safe place for you to explore, to do self-exploration uh, of this. So I'm very happy to be here, and I hope that you, uh, uh, you, hope that you enjoy and get something out of our, of our film. Uh, thanks a lot. Twenty-five hundred years ago, a man sat under a Bodhi tree, determined not to budge until he saw all there was to see. Upon arising, now enlightened, the Buddha spent the next forty-five years teaching a new and revolutionary way of seeing the world. The essence of his teachings, called the Dharma, was articulated in the Four Noble Truths, where he taught the path to the end of all suffering. Central to these teachings was an important notion that the Dharma is not just about humans. Rather, it includes all of the beings who share the earth. During the course of this film, we'll explore what the Buddha taught us about animals and our relationship to them. Most people raised in the West were taught that animals are very different from people. The food culture centers around eating animals. It's everywhere, in advertising, in restaurants, in the supermarket. And few people think twice before eating a hamburger, or steak, or a piece of chicken. The entertainment industry showcases them in circuses, and zoos, and aquariums and the medical and cosmetics industries experiment on them. Most of us care very deeply about our companion animals, such as dogs and cats, but we often fail to extend this same compassion to other animals. Imagine instead a culture where animals are not harmed. When people are introduced to the Dharma, one of the first things they're taught is the first precept, cause no harm. And they're taught that this principle of non-harm extends not just to humans, but to all beings. Unlike in Western culture, where animals are kind of considered a separate, almost a separate form of life, and humans are considered very, very different, in Buddhism, we're all considered to be just a part of nature. And that we all have the same, we could say five aggregates. We're all made up of the same kinds of stuff. So there's not a hard and fast dividing line between humans on the one hand and the creatures on the other. That's why the first ethical precept in the Buddha's teachings is not to take the life of any living being. 
So I think that's the fundamental stance from the point of view of the Dharma. As a Buddhist, when you take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the one of the principles that uh, by taking uh, refuge in Dharma and Buddha is that not harming other beings, not causing harm to other beings. That is the number one key principles that you take by taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. When I'm asked what's the major factor of Buddhism, I will say ahimsa. And ahimsa means non-harming. And in what I've learned of Buddhism, the non-harming is of ourselves, of others, including animals, and of the environment. Those three things are the three things that I see, at least our tradition, try to deal with all the time. To live lightly on the land. And that would certainly include not taking the life of another, uh, not stealing their life and also what their bodies were made of. So uh, the teaching is really, you know, not to do any harm. That's the first precept, not to do, not to kill, or, or sometimes it's translated as harm uh, living beings. And uh, it's partly to do with a, a sense of compassion for the animal, a sense of recognising that animals suffer. There's also, uh, you might say... Um, uh, a more transcendent view of it that, you know, uh, according to the Dharma, uh, we take rebirth. And it might be that um, uh, some of the animals that you are, that we are uh, killing, were once human beings or uh, hopefully were moving up uh, the strata. So um, I think it's basically seeing his teaching as a whole and putting all animals within that process of, of liberation. I'm lucky in a sense I've taken the precepts in all three traditions. I'm a joint monk now in the Tibetan tradition and the Soto Zen tradition. But in my early days I trained in a Theravada tradition and spent a short time as a Theravada monk. So I've taken the precepts in all three traditions. In the early tradition of Theravada the first precept was translated to me as Panatipada Venamani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the rule of training to refrain from causing injury to living things. That's all living things. That's how it was taught to me. And that's how I teach people. All living things. So we refrain from harming them. That's the same in the Tibetan tradition, because in the Tibetan uh, tradition, the Vinaya is based on the early Patimokha tradition anyway, so the, the precepts are more or less the same. The difference comes in the Zen tradition, where the first precept just says, do not kill. And this means, do not kill the Buddha. Do not kill the Buddha mind, if you like. Do not do anything that hampers the growth and movement and flow of the Buddha mind, the Buddha nature, the Dharmakaya. So, obviously, the eating of animals and the interfering with the animal kingdom, exploiting it, does affect that precept, does block that flow, does get in the way of the flow of the Buddha mind, of the Dharmakaya. So the first precept, not to cause any injury to any living thing, means any living thing. You know, it's interesting to me because the suttas on one hand are very clear about non-harming. And when they talk about beings, it's all beings. It's sentient beings. Um, 
included in the first precept of non-harming is to not take life. So that seems fairly clear to me that the Buddha was intending us to include in our field of metta or loving-kindness all kinds of beings from the smallest to the largest, the two-legged, the four-legged, the many-legged. So that's really how I hold it and certainly how I try to live my life. And I don't claim to be perfect. There are challenging situations about that. But the first precept of non-harming is is really very dear to my heart, both as an attitude towards, you know, people that people that I meet certainly, but as I said, to all beings and really knowing, acknowledging that to each being, their life is precious. To practice compassion, to practice uh, loving friendliness, metta, uh, to appreciate, to develop, uh, appreciate the joy of life. We always say that we have came from killing one of the five precepts. <clears throat> so uh, this precept applies to everybody. Buddhism has two main branches, Mahayana and Theravada. In both lineages, the Buddha talks about our relationship to animals and the fundamental question of the morality of eating them. In the Mahayana scriptures, the Buddha is unequivocal, addressing the subject in detail in the Lankavatara Sutra. For innumerable reasons, the Bodhisattva, whose nature is compassion, is not to eat any meat. Thus, Mahamati, whenever there is the evolution of living beings, let people cherish the thought of kinship with them, and thinking that all beings are to be loved as if they were an only child, let them refrain from eating meat. If, Mahamati, meat is not eaten by anybody for any reason, there will be no destroyer of life. Thus, Mahamati, meat-eating I have not permitted to anyone. I do not permit. I will not permit. There are many different quotes of the parishes where they're talking about different lives and not eating meat. One of the very strong statements that Buddha had oh. is, I condemn meat eating in all means. I have never approved a meat eating. I will never approve a meat eating. And I do not approve a meat eating for my followers. For all sentient beings are equal to me like my only son. For Bodhisattva vows, uh, lay people can also take Bodhisattva vows if they choose. Monastics have our monastic precepts that are different from lay people, or at least more elaborated than what the lay people take as the five precepts. But the bodhisattva vows, um, they can also take vows, and the bodhisattva precepts um, will, will prohibit eat, meat eating, whether you're a lay person or a monastic. Um, it's very explicit. So, Buddha's main teaching is a uh, be vegetarian. Mm. Main teaching is don't kill uh, animal, don't kill human, human body, don't kill animals, 
don't lying, don't stealing, very nice, honest compassion for other to take care for how is I can do other to benefit only these things remember he always he said. The Buddha also addresses the subject of eating animal products in the Surangama Sutra. Bhikshus who do not wear silk, leather boots, furs, or down from this country, or consume milk, cream, or butter, can truly transcend this world. In the Theravadan scriptures, only a few passages address the subject of eating meat. In the Jivaka Sutta, the Buddha discusses a notion called the Three Purities, saying that monks are not allowed to eat meat unless they know the animal was not killed for them. Jivaka, I say that there are three instances in which meat should not be eaten, when it is seen, heard, or suspected that the living being has been slaughtered for oneself. I say that meat should not be eaten in these three instances. I say that there are three instances in which meat may be eaten, when it is not seen, not heard, and not suspected that the living being has been slaughtered for oneself. So one of the monastic rules in uh, Theravadan Buddhism is that monks are allowed to eat meat. And I think that was a very practical thing at the time of the Buddha, as I understand it, because of the simple concept, beggars can't be choosers. And we have these penniless, wandering vagabonds who need to sustain their bodies in order to carry on their dharma practice, if they went from house to house and said, no, I have to have a special kind of food, no, don't give me that, it would have been much harder for the lay community to support them. So the Buddha said it was permissible for them to eat meat as long as they didn't know, uh, hear, or suspect that the animal had been killed specifically for them. If they suspected that or knew that, then they weren't allowed to eat that meat. So I think what the Buddha was saying is that as agents, we shouldn't, where we have a choice, we shouldn't be involved in that chain of killing. Even though the the bhikkhu had not done the killing and someone else had done that, it was still considered improper if it was killed with the bhikkhu in mind. In a modern consumer society, when we walk into the supermarket, one has to wonder, who have those animals been killed for? And as an average consumer, you know, it often feels to me like they, they were killed with me in mind if I, if I buy that meat. So an updated understanding of that could be in this modern consumer society. By buying meat and fish products, we're participating in that same chain of killing that the Buddha recommended against. And so the rule was made that if you uh, didn't ask, if you didn't kill the animal yourself, you didn't request it to be killed for you, and you are not aware that it was killed on your behalf, then karmically you are pure, because you were just wandering around through the villages collecting whatever people happened to want to put in your begging bowl. But in a situation where actually you are in charge of what you can eat, 
and you go into butcher shops and you buy meat, then in a way the very fact that you're buying it is saying that you are subscribing to the whole culture which rears meat to be killed for consumption. I mean, they only kill, raise and kill these animals because people buy the meat. If we didn't buy it, they would, that particular industry would die out. That if somebody goes into a market, say on a Tuesday, and orders a piece of chicken, at the sales counter somebody will click some kind of a calculator which will determine on Tuesday a piece of chicken was sold which will send out a message for next Tuesday that we have to meet the same quantity of chickens to satisfy our customer base. You know, so even though when you order the chicken on Tuesday, you're not responsible for the death of the chicken that's providing that meal on Tuesday, but in an indirect way, you can be sending a signal that next Tuesday a chicken should be killed to provide food for the customers. Many people who have not spent time with animals don't realize just how much like us they are. They're smart, sensitive, emotional, and it doesn't take long to realize that every animal has his own unique personality. However, despite their being sensitive, we often treat animals with extreme insensitivity, even cruelty. Buddhists realize that all lives are equal in terms of wanting peace and happiness, not wanting um, pain and suffering. We are all same sentient being. Just we have a different form of life, but in terms of living the life is same, human or the animal, and same desire, same uh, right to live in peace and happiness. The Dharma relationship to uh, uh, animals, <coughs> first and foremost, is the recognition that animals have consciousness which means that they feel. Animals is like ourselves. They also uh, appreciate the kindness. Uh, they also uh, fear of death and avoid suffering and uh, also desire for happiness. Uh, I think uh, we are human beings. We understand uh, what is suffering and what is happiness. And also we uh, advanced enough to understand that the other animals also have that feeling as well. You only have to live in a place like this where we see deer out the window and the mother deer with her little babies in the spring and how tenderly she takes care of them and how much they look to their mother for safety and protection and follow her and feel safe with her and, and to know that there's a bond there that's really precious for them and in seeing that it opens our hearts to that sense of connectedness. So I think just to 
for people to broaden their understanding of animals and the animal experience is an important part of this consideration of choices in what we eat. These animals are sentient beings that live, have their lives. And so I, I want to be able to treat the animal world with great respect, with great kindness, and that they have just as much right to be here as any other being. For most of us, besides our companion animals, our main relationship to animals is the food we eat. Yet because the process of food production is hidden from sight, it's easy to avoid the connection between the food on our plates and the animal she once was. Are these animals being killed for you? And normally people have no idea what animals go through. Um, it, will, it will only be realized when you get to see uh, what actually happens in the slaughterhouses. Um, until then, you wouldn't realize. And then when you see that, actually, um, you will feel um, if that is really appropriate to eat them. Um, it's really horrifying. Um, um, as certain slaughterhouses have, like, um, the entire animal that they are supposed to slaughter the, for the day are uh, standing in a corner out there and then the, the one by another being slaughtered in front of the rest of the animal and then you can um, imagine how um, terrifying uh, that experience would be. Uh, it just imagine yourself being uh, out there and all your friends and colleagues are being slaughtered uh, and you are in, in, in the line, just, you know, a step away from that um, terrifying thing. According to the most religion, talk about hell, like most horrifying suffering realm, but I can't imagine there is something more horrifying and painful, uh, so-called hell, then those horrifying experience when you are lined up uh, in the slaughterhouse, uh, just heartbreaking. So we need to actually uh, see those things so, so that how we humans uh, are actually causing so much trouble to other fellow um, sentient beings. It's said that throughout the average lifespan of an American um, who lives to be maybe 75, he or she will be responsible for the deaths of 15,000 animals, you know, from large to small, on an average American diet. So that's a lot of killing, that's a lot of karma to be responsible for. Um, there's not so much separation. There's an apparent separation between us and other creatures. But actually, when we become very sensitive, we can feel that when we see another being in suffering, that we feel the suffering too. So usually this is a very human response. You cannot bear to see 
an animal killed in front of you or, or being, you know, dying in front of you? Well, you know, I mean, just as I wouldn't particularly like someone to uh, kill and eat me, I don't think any being wants to be slaughtered and killed and eaten. And especially considering the manner in which animals are killed in this day and age, the terror and uh, trauma that they go through in, in, the, in the process. How can we sit down and eat them? The Buddha really um, expressed his teaching or reduced his teaching in a very simple formula. He said uh, in the Pali, it's Dukkha, Dukkha, Niroga, it's three words. Uh, he said that uh, he basically taught suffering, which means how it arises and all that, and the end of it, how, how we bring it to an end. Now, uh, anybody in contact with suffering is moved by it. it there's a... Um, when we see somebody suffering or an animal suffering, uh, there's a resonance in our own hearts uh, which connects us with that suffering. Uh, we can call it a sorrow, and that sorrow drives us to try and do something about uh, that person or that animal. I don't think that by my eating vegetarian or my becoming a vegetarian, uh, being vegeta vegetarian or my other people becoming vegetarian, uh, the world will stop uh, killing. And no matter how many people become vegetarians, the world will not stop killing. But we can minimize the amount of animals raised in farms for killing. The, the number of animals slaughtered can come down if people become vegetarians. A lot of people pay attention to the precept about not taking a life, and that makes sense. That's kind of obvious. Almost every world religion has something about not killing, and there is no asterisk. It doesn't say humans. It says thou shalt not kill. Same with the Buddhist precepts. It doesn't say just humans. It says we shall not take breath away. We should not take a life. But the precept that gets very little attention that I think is very important and related to that is the precept of not taking that which is not freely offered. Because when we take cow's milk, that milk was created by the mother cow for her offspring. And when we take that milk away, we are taking that which is not freely offered. And when I say not freely offered, it's not freely offered for a number of reasons. There's a price the cow pays. The baby is taken away from the mother soon after birth, within days, so that we can take the milk. And I find that heartbreaking. And I've heard cows crying for one another. The mother cow is just belting and screaming for the baby, and the baby is crying for the mother, and it's heart-wrenching. We do that routinely so that humans can take the milk. To me, that is stealing. Also, we take the life of the cow in that after her production falls and she's not as productive as she was, that's another way we're taking her life and we're taking that which is not freely given. It's not freely given because she gives her life for the milk industry. Even on the most humane farms, even where the cow is treated beautifully during life, she is repeatedly impregnated, repeatedly impregnated. It's a nine-month gestation just like humans. She gives birth and then the baby's taken away. And she has to be repeatedly impregnated so that she will keep milk flowing at the production levels that we've bred them to produce, and it's unnatural. So they're frequently uncomfortable. The udders are frequently distended and get mastitis and other problems. And we're stealing the milk from the baby whose milk it should be. If you look at the life of a chicken, a chicken raised for her eggs, they're all born in, um, in incubators. They don't have the benefit of their 
their mother nurturing them. And then of course, half of your little chicks are gonna be males. And those male chickens that are raised for their eggs um, are not gonna be good flesh producers. They're small animals that put all their, their nutrients into producing a large number of eggs. So the little male chicks are just ground up alive when they're less than a day old. And the females that are kept, then they have the tips of their beak seared off, they're de-beaked. And then they go live in a cage. And that's where they stay for a year and a half, two years. And after that, their egg production decreases, and so they're gassed or they're sent to slaughter. So whether it's a free-range farm, a cage-free farm, or a battery farm, chickens have a horrendous life. When everybody gets before King Yama after they've died and they start blaming each other. If you didn't want to eat it, I wouldn't kill it. And if you didn't kill it, I wouldn't sell it. And so we have the buyer, the seller, and the the slaughterer all putting the blame on somebody else, when in fact, truly, it is interconnected. If you didn't have one, you wouldn't need the other. I see that argument as modern, but I also see it as ancient. If you care about suffering, if you care about your own suffering and the suffering of others, Uh, then you want to know what that person, that other being's experience is. And you don't want to turn away, right? You want to know. You want to know what, how am I acting? What am I doing that's, that I may not have been aware of that's creating difficulty and suffering? I think that would be true for anyone who cared about suffering. And you don't have to look very far or hard to see the suffering that comes, obviously, from uh, killing animals. Uh, You know, in the Dharma, part of what we're encouraged and invited to do is to turn towards suffering and not avert ourselves or turn away. You know, we want to see what's, what's the cause of my suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. all the things we can do to help alleviate the suffering of animals, the most important is to stop eating them. You might also consider no longer consuming their products, such as milk and eggs. When you do, you may be surprised at just how good vegan food tastes. For those who find it difficult to stop all at once, a gradual transition may be easier. Maybe start by choosing one meal a day, or one day a week to be vegetarian or vegan. Try substituting soy milk for cow's milk in your breakfast cereal. It just takes one second to decide stopping. It doesn't make any huge chaotic change in our life. It's just we eat something else. It's so simple. It can be done instantly. So, less effort for the very big result, ethically, for the animals and other poor people, for the planet, for our own health. It seems a sensible mind should say this is not an extremist perspective, this is a most reasonable and compassionate point of view. It's also about the, the environment that we need to protect. The environment not just about uh, water uh, and atmosphere, greenhouse, but it's also about forest, it's also about and full life that we need to protect because it's an important ecosystem. So I think vegetarians is a very holistic approach uh, that fast to embrace uh, all, all that uh, 
uh, awareness and also uh, the kindness and compassion practice um, uh, are very much uh, together uh, in a very holistic way. The, the point with vegetarianism is that in this modern day and age where food is, is so easily obtained, there doesn't seem to me to be too much excuse to eat any kind of food which has caused pain to another being. I mean, it doesn't seem to fit in with our whole idea on uh, compassion and bodhicitta. Previous to um, my monastic ordination, I was married and I had a child. I was once out with my son in his stroller. A lady came by and was admiring him and uh, went for that typical pinch the chicks little uh, movement and said something to the effect, you're so cute I could eat you. At that moment, it hit me like the proverbial ton of bricks that all the animals that are ever eaten are somebody's child. And I certainly didn't want my child eaten, even figuratively. So that was my transition from being a health-conscious vegetarian to an ethical vegetarian. How can we bring this compassion to all beings? Yes, we may not be able to do it all the time. We may inadvertently be causing harm, but how, again, as I came back earlier, to cause the least harm possible and to become educated? to become aware of what actually is here. In early uh, days of my life, I was not a vegetarian. I, had, uh, I ate all kind of uh, meat. But later on, uh, purely because of my conscience, I thought uh, it would be much better if I become a vegetarian. I have seen animals being slaughtered. I have seen animals raised for meat in farms and so on. I have seen animals suffering. And uh, therefore I felt uh, a little guilty of eating meat. Uh, I have to, when people uh, asked me to talk on Dhamma. I talk on metta, living friendliness, meditation, also I teach. And when people uh, ask questions about uh, meat eating, uh, eating meat, this appears to me not compatible. Yes, I was a monk in South Korea back in the 80s, and uh, it was in a monastery. Uh, when I got there, I realized that they were vegan, what we would call vegan. No meat, dairy, or eggs, no wool, silk, or leather, and it really deepened my commitment to being a vegan. The practice of plant-based eating had been going on for centuries, maybe for 700 years, and it was part of the practice of deepening meditation, the idea that it's difficult to go deep in meditation if I'm acting in ways that are not ethical and harming other living beings uh, disconnects me from the root of compassion and meditative equanimity. We're all raised in a society where we're forced to disconnect from our natural wisdom and compassion. If you say 
I'm no eat meat. One year I no eat meat. That's also good benefit. I say I'm one month no eating. That's also good. I'm not eating one day. Also benefit. benefit. Then eat uh, completely whole life no eat. That's the best. When you do go vegan, not only will the animals thank you, so will your body. It's often easy to find products that are not tested on animals and do not contain animal ingredients. Look for the words, not tested on animals, or no animal ingredients, or look for the cruelty-free logo. An excellent book on animals and the Dharma is The Great Compassion by Norm Phelps. If you would like more information, the Dharma Voices for Animals website has a resource page with many helpful recommendations. If you've ever been on a Buddhist retreat, you were probably reminded to refrain from harming insects, such as spiders and mosquitoes, as part of the first precepts principle of non-harm. Try extending this practice into your everyday life. If animals come into your home, consider trapping and releasing them. Another thing you can do is talk to people about our relationship to animals, engaging them one-on-one -on -one or starting a discussion within your Sangha. You can also arrange for a screening of this video. Talking with others about this issue is an opportunity to practice right speech. It's important to always be respectful and make it clear that you are not telling people what to do or judging them. Instead, you are simply asking them to consider this important issue. When people reach this point in their practice where they're investigating the question of vegetarianism or veganism, they really have to examine it from a lot of different alternatives. What foods are they familiar with? What foods are they comfortable with? What foods do they have access to on a daily basis that will really strengthen their body and support their health? It may take some time as they wrestle with the ethical question, as they experiment with their diet, to figure out what's, what's going to feel best for them in the long run. I really think it's important for every practitioner to approach that in an open-ended and pressure-free way so they come to their own understanding about it. So I don't think from uh, myself or my friends who are vegetarian that we have a judging attitude to people as they explore that. The choices we make uh, about whether to eat animals or not is such an important decision, not only for the animals who suffer so terribly, but also for ourselves, the law of karma. Buddhists worldwide should be at the forefront of, of this, of this discussion. And yet, it seems that no one is, is talking about this. I'm very grateful, though, to a number of Buddhist teachers around the world who have been recently uh, identifying themselves as vegetarian or as vegan, and also sharing with their sanghas and with, their, um, uh, with the folks in the retreat centers that it's the Buddhist teachings on non-harming and compassion which leads the teacher uh, to, 
deciding not to not to eat animals. As you know, it's very interesting. I have made a choice due to this, my own sense of the sensitivity of beings to to try to cause the least harm and to not eat them. And actually, I don't even wear them. And I don't want to use any products that are part of them in there. But I also know, you know, I wear these clothes, I use a phone, I drive a car, and it could be also part of exploitive labor. I mean, it's impossible, as I said earlier. It's impossible not to cause harm, but how can I cause the least harm and let us make a conscious choice? So, my dear friends, sisters and brothers, colleagues in the Dharma world, um, I invite you to just to bring awareness and let, let your awareness in these teachings of the Dharma inform you. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand why it's so hard for people to become vegetarian. It's come down to, um, for me, two main reasons, both of which are Buddhist concepts. The first is conditioning. We're taught that it's okay to eat animals. We're told by our parents, we're told by society. It's constantly reinforced. And when we're conditioned our entire lives to see things one way, it's hard to see them another. And this really goes to, um, to really Buddhist training, where we spend our time reconditioning ourselves. But it does start with an intent to recondition ourselves. And it's a process. And I think the second reason, and probably the biggest reason it's so hard for people to stop, is desire. And it's not a simple desire. It's uh, craving, it's clinging, it's attachment. We like eating meat. We like the way it feels. We just don't want to give it up. And this, of course, goes to the heart of the Buddhist teachings, the Four Noble Truths, Dependent Origination. And we know that desire is the cause of suffering. In this case, the cause of your suffering and the cause of the suffering of other beings. And it's only through um, overcoming desire and giving up our attachments that we can put an end to suffering. It's what we do that defines us. It's how we act and how we behave that defines us as Buddhists, not what we say or chant about or what pictures we have. So we really have to wake up uh, to what we are and what our responsibilities are and be honest. It's very difficult to be honest and, and just look at yourselves, those who eat meat, just reflect. It's because you like it, isn't it, really? I've heard people say, I'm just not ready to give it up yet. So that's an honest answer. Um, you could ex one could explore that, and there could be a lot. Well, what what's going on if you were to unpack that? You know, what what's holding you on to that? If you've gotten to a point where you can say, "I'm not ready to give it up," that is saying, "Well, there's something really. Uh, maybe I I would want to entertain, or that I could, but I'm not quite ready to go there." Interesting place for someone who can say, I'm not ready to give it up, so you know you're causing harm or there's something about it. it I would see that as to be a, a really rich and fruitful area for investigation. I think the only thing that I wish for within the Dharma community is not to push my ideas of veganism on you, but to investigate for yourself what is true. And to know that when you're eating a burger or meat, it's flesh and it's the skin of an animal. And like, let that not be denied. And so I don't want to be critical of my sisters and brothers in the Dharma, but I, I do wish for you all to look very closely 
at what actually it is that we're putting in our mouths. Our relationship to animals provides an excellent opportunity for developing our practice by being continually mindful of how our actions impact animals we can cultivate compassion and non-harm and other wholesome Buddhist qualities. And it's always been my preference to, to be vegetarian since I became a Buddhist. Compassion is always defined well, very simply with the same fixed expression, which is it's the quality of the heart, or it's the quality that makes the heart of a good person tremble with the suffering of others, and it's the wish to alleviate the suffering of others. So it would, again, it would seem to me sort of intuitively that if one has this deep quality of compassion, that one doesn't want others to suffer, and one knows that either ordering meat or consuming meat is going to, through some chain of causation, bring about the, even the cruel upbringing and the slaughter of animals, that out of compassion one would adopt vegetarianism. So that's why it seems to me that if one takes the ethical principles of Buddhism, in my own reflection, and tries to be strictly consistent with them, it would seem to entail an obligation to observe vegetarianism, at least within in countries where one does have an option. The heart of the Buddhist path is compassion. That means to value others, if you value others, you value their well-being and you are concerned by their suffering. And so it seems that, um, aberrant to survive at the cost of others' suffering. And so if we can do it, if, there's a, if we can survive, uh, so of course that means the condition that in which we can find other types of means of survival. Mm-hmm. And it's, for me it seems to be a must uh, in terms of Buddhist practice. We are engaged in sharing with our brothers and sisters in the Dharma this understanding that compassion is the highest form of wisdom and that compassion for all is what we are called upon to have and feel and develop. Compassion, again, is just, uh, it's just that movement uh, away from harm to protection, to doing good. It's, it's just a natural process that happens once you refrain from doing harm. Well, to quote George Bernard Shaw, animals are my friends and I don't eat my friends. For the Buddhist community, uh, my brothers and sisters, my appeal for you is that since we took refuge in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and we took the basic principles from among them, number one is not killing. In terms of not killing, it's not necessarily mean that you go kill, but it's also causing the killing, So, which means when you eat other animal, you are the cause of that killing. So my appeal to you is that try to learn about a vegetarian lifestyle, try to learn about a vegan lifestyle, which is way healthier, more compassionate lifestyle. So please try that because we have taken certain principle before the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and 
if we don't follow our principles, then we are just a name Buddhist. So try to live your belief, live your faith, and try to put Dhamma into your practice. For all of us, none of us are going to be perfect. We're going to have places, and, but what happens is our, um, our awareness and our deepening and our ability to actualize the first precept of non-harming, it grows as, as a fruit of all the other parts of Dharma practice that we're doing. So the basic sense of compassion is also uh, explained in the Metta Sutta uh, when the Buddha said, just as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one care for all living beings. Just like us, animals want to live lives free of pain and suffering. And it is up to each of us to make choices that respect all of the creatures of the earth. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be free from suffering. time and we'll meet back and start at 1.30. It's about 45, about 50 minutes. And I believe that uh, right outside there's tables that have been set up and um, enjoy your food. And um, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.